Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Lord, free us from dogma and rules and regulations and certainties that give shape to a callous faith and help us to see our own unseeing and open our hearts to receive new sight again and again. Amen. And please be seated. What a glorious weekend it has been, huh? We've been waiting, longing for this sunshine and the ivy is bursting because it has not ever received so much rain. It's incredible. And I find myself so thankful for these times that we can gather, express a sacred story, extend a common table that animate life by love. I think I've missed that maybe more than anything throughout COVID, the idea of a, of a group of people gathering together and, and sitting together and thinking together and being together. The season of Easter and the Gospel of John are celebrations of life. And in John's attempt to celebrate life, he intentionally mimics the account of Genesis. But rather than seven days of creation, there are seven miracles that lead to Jesus and Mary Magdalene in a garden having a conversation. It's like a new Adam and a new Eve, a new humanity, trying to experience and encounter a new way of living in the world together. And so throughout Eastertide, we're in a sermon series that is exploring John's seven miracles, which demonstrate for us, embody for us a way of resurrected living in this world today. So far, we've covered miracle one, water to wine, miracle two, healing the dying, miracle three, caring for the sick, miracle four, bread from heaven, miracle five, walking on water. And this morning, miracle number six, healing the blind. Some time ago, I met with a person who had been at Pearl for about a year or so, and we were discussing various aspects of Pearl Church, and I said that one thing we're trying to be intentional about here to nurture at Pearl is a sense of mystery. And after saying this, he paused the conversation, looked me directly in the eyes, and said, Mike, I I don't know. I think it's more than that. My experience here at Pearl has been that we celebrate mystery. We celebrate it. And that was an incredible moment for me. You see, religion very often becomes about the opposite of mystery. Religion very often facilitates certainty. And unfortunately, this is very often true about our religion, Christianity. Uh, To try and make this point, by way of example, I'd like to give a brief history of Christian creeds. So just hold on, we won't spend all morning on them, but I think it helps to demonstrate the increasing need that humans have, especially within religious frameworks, for certainty. In the second century, the Apostles' Creed arrived. It was short, it was sweet, it was sung more like a hymn than a creed. 
It was 109 words. Then, around 325 CE, there was the Arian heresy, which questioned the divinity of Christ, and so developed the Nicene Creed, which made it more clear who Jesus was with more specific language. Part of it reads, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. It's about 223 words. But then by 381 CE, there was the Macedonian heresy, which denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And so they revised the Nicene Creed to beef up the portion about the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, and who spoke through the prophets. And that creed's about 225 words. After this came the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 CE, which doesn't say anything about God or the Holy Spirit or the church. It actually leaves all of that out. This one is solely about Jesus, who they thought was still in need of better definition. It's about 208 words in length. Think about that. A statement about Jesus as long as the entire Nicene Creed. Part of the 208-word sentence, and to be clear, it's just a sentence, it's kind of like a Paul sentence. It reads, Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. I like that. Reasonable soul and body. Consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. Just a little bit more. And in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, <laughs> unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but you get the point. Then we have the Athanasian Creed of 500 CE, which is similar to the earlier creeds and covers more than just Jesus. It's almost two times longer than the Nicene Creed. It's about 660 words. Then we move into the medieval age when there isn't a lot of development of the creeds. Fast forward to the Enlightenment, when the Anglicans broke from the Catholics. They needed their own confession. So they came up with 28 very long articles. Then the Protestants broke from the Catholics and came up with 39 even longer articles. Is anyone exhausted yet? To top it all off, I went to seminary about 20 years ago and I received a Master of Divinity degree. Think about the silliness of that. Master of Divinity. <laughs> you see, for much of Christianity, this has been the progression from ancient mystery and wonder and ongoing transformation leading to a vibrant way of life and community in this world to a politically charged, scientifically defined, and theologically refined statement of belief, which, depending on the Christian tradition you're part of, you must affirm to be Christian. Now, I may be called a heretic for what I'm about to say, and so be it. As I understand it, if Jesus cared about this, he would have given us a concise statement to affirm. There is no concise statement. And if God cared about this, especially for Protestants, God could have given us a Bible which was just a concise statement of that which we must believe in order for God to save us from this terrible place that some people think we're going to go to. But that didn't happen. Do you know what did happen? Well, let me tell you. 
In the fourth century, through the Council of Nicaea, it was said that the church had taken her first great step to define revealed doctrine more precisely in response to a challenge from heretical theology. And as great and maybe as satisfying and comforting as that definition was, over time, it was the exact definition that caused East and West to split, and then Anglicans broke from Catholics, which led to the Anglican Confession, and then the Protestants broke from the Catholics, which this led to the Osberg Confession. Fast forward to today, read any church's creed, and you will be able to determine who is Catholic, who is Lutheran, who is Baptist, who is Pentecostal, who is right, who is wrong, who is in, who is out, who is going up, who is going down. It's exhausting. Does anyone else see a problem with this? Especially when Jesus, who supposedly started this quagmire, had a conversation with Pharisees, religious people, in this morning's gospel passage, which goes like this. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, So that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Now that you say we see, your sin remains. And this makes me wonder, what if Christianity, as it began with Jesus, was never supposed to be about getting it all perfectly right? I mean, even a basic study in linguistics makes it clear that language is inherently imperfect. Language is simply audible symbols used to describe electrical impulses that we now call consciousness. And we somehow think that we're going to nail the ineffable divine source of it all as it is comprehended by our consciousness with symbols that we call words. It's incredible hubris, isn't it, for we humans? Now, to rein it in just a bit, we have to use words to articulate life. And this necessarily means arriving at common language when it comes to matters of faith. This is why I overall feel pretty good about the Apostles' Creed. It's ancient, it's simple, it leaves room for mystery, it allows for differences in interpretation. And I I do think it helps to situate us in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But here's the thing. According to this morning's story, certainty in faith is blindness, and blindness in faith is sight. I'll say that again because it's a bit of a mind-bender. Certainty in faith is blindness, and blindness in faith is sight. And if this were true, then it would make me wonder about the trajectory of Christianity. It would make me wonder if we've been going about it the wrong way for a very long time. Like, what if the purpose from the very beginning was never about leading us to a more clearly and perfectly articulation of faith? that results in certainty that we have it all figured out. And what if those religious people who think they get it all and see it all clearly and can perfectly define it, what if they are, as Jesus calls them, what if those people are actually blind? And what if blindness, groping around in the dark, living in in uncertainty, open to seeing just a little bit better, maybe day by day, appreciating glimpses of momentary light when they come our way? What if that is actually what it's all about? And what if that is what Jesus calls sight? 
Well, if that's the case, then life in Christ, Christian faith, would be less about moving toward more and more certainty, dogma, and it would be more and more about a posture of living in the world which is open to new sights, new ideas, new ways of being. In this morning story from John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who had been blind from the day he was born. And it's this blind man and his healing that challenges everyone's certainty about their world and about their God. Verse 2, the disciples see a blind man and ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the disciples were absolutely certain that there were only two options for a person who was born with some kind of difficulty. Either the parents sinned or the person who is experiencing the difficulty sinned. That is the only way that they could see it. That is to say, according to the disciples, bad things happen to people. Bad things happening to people is the result of people being bad. In other words, are you blind? Are you houseless? Are you sick? Are you imprisoned? Are you isolated? Are you struggling? The list could go on forever. Is your life terribly difficult? Well, that's what God does to the guilty. You are guilty. And of course, this certainty would lead to a way of living in the world. Either the person in a bad situation would be ignored and left alone to God's judgment, or they would be exhorted to repent of sin in order that they might be healed. Those are terrible options, terrible options for seeing people who suffer. Verses 8 and 9, the neighbors of the now healed blind man and the crowd around him were absolutely certain that a person blind from birth was beyond healing. There's nothing that could be done for such a person. And of course, this certainty would lead to a way of living in the world. That person is beyond help. That person cannot be healed. That person will be like that in that difficult situation for the rest of their life. Those are the options when you see life through certainty. Verse 16, the Pharisees, the very religious, were absolutely certain that a person blind from birth could not be healed on Sabbath because it was against God's law. And of course, this certainty would lead to a way of living in the world. Like, there would be days to do good, and then there would be days to refrain from doing good. And there would be moments to look up and see those who are in need, but then there would also be days and moments where you're supposed to ignore those who are in need. There would be days on which God could do the miraculous, but then there would be other days on which God would refrain from doing the miraculous. Those are the options when you see life through certainty. Verse 18, much like the neighbors in the crowd around the now healed blind man, the Jews were absolutely certain that a person blind from birth was beyond healing. That's what they thought. That person is beyond help. That person cannot be healed. That person will be like that in that situation for the rest of their life. Those are the options when you see the world through that lens. Verses 27 to 29, the blind man answered the Pharisees. When you hear Pharisees, just think the very religious. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? He's a sassy guy, isn't he? (laughs) Then they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Here, the very religious were absolutely certain that they belonged to the right leader. And that the now seeing blind man belonged to an inferior leader. And of course, this certainty would lead to a way of living in the world. You are right, you are wrong. We are in, you are out. We are better, you are worse. We are further along, you are so far behind. 
Those are the options that we're dealing with when somebody sees the world through a lens of certainty. Verses 33 to 34, the now healed blind man said, if this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. They answered him, you were born entirely in sin and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Here, the very religious were absolutely certain that they could not be taught by a blind man who now sees. And of course, the certainty would lead to a way of living in the world. These kinds of people, these are the kinds of people that I'm willing to listen to and to learn from. These kinds of people are the people who I'm unwilling to listen to and learn from. These kinds of people have things to say. These kinds of people, they don't have things to say. These kinds of people can teach me. These kinds of people need to be taught by me. Again, these are the options when you see life through a religious framework of certainty. And then at the very end of the story, in verses 38 to 41, the blind man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Then some of the Pharisees near him said, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not have sin." But now that you say we see, your sin remains. And so you see who is blind in this story. The blind man was told from birth that either he or his parents sinned. The blind man was told from birth that he can never be healed. The blind man from birth was told healing does not happen on Sabbath. The blind man was told from birth, you must follow after the greatest prophet, Moses. And yet... Yet, in the midst of all of that certainty scattered over his life, he remained open to the possibility that these statements of certainty may be uncertain. I'd love to say that again. He remained open to the possibility that statements of certainty were uncertain. And because of his openness, the story tells us the man began to see. And... Because of this, the man's newfound sight, he began to confess Jesus as one who helps us to see. But the very religious were so certain, so certain, that they were blinded by their tradition. They were blinded by their laws and their religion. And because of this, they could not see the beating heart of God in Jesus breaking through tradition and overcoming laws, overturning religion to give new sight. Which brings me to the heart of the story and to a very important question. Who is blind in this story? Well, clearly, it's those who were so certain about God, so certain about life, so certain about how it all works together. And about these very certain religious folk, Jesus says at the end of the story, you are blind, your sin remains. And all of this brings us back to the mind bender that I stated earlier. Certainty in faith is blindness, and blindness in faith is sight. And if that's true, which I think it is, then it unequivocally redirects the trajectory of Christianity from a more clearly articulated and perfectly defined faith that results in our certainty that we have it all figured out to seeing the beating heart of God in Jesus. Like, what if when tradition is broken through, or certain laws are overcome, or certain religion is turned upside down, what if that is actually the process of sight, of humankind seeing more and more clearly? 
And so as I understand it, this means that our sense of not seeing clearly, like those moments when we're groping around in the dark. Anyone feel like they've been groping around in the dark lately? Like living in mystery? Like remaining open to seeing just a little bit more clearly? Thankful for glimpses of light that come our way every once in a while? Those moments, according to Jesus, are not ailments to be healed from. These are the lenses through which we come to see and better understand the love of God made manifest in this world. And so what exactly does this look like? You know, in real life, as it relates to Eastertide and resurrected living, I'm sure there are a lot of ways to tease it out, but I'm going to give us a few thoughts just to get the conversation going. I'll begin with this. What if we as a community were to affirm how difficult it is to see clearly? Like, what if that was an affirmation of Pearl Church? It is hard to see clearly. In fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, doesn't everything seem like we're looking through opaque glasses? You have questions? Wonderful. You feel confused? That's okay. You feel untethered? So do I. You struggle with all of those ideas? I've been there too. And instead of stuffing or hiding or fixing as quickly as possible, what if we were to commit ourselves to wrestling together over life and matters of faith that are deeply important? As a community, asking more questions. As a community, entering more deeply into the confusion. As a community, allowing our struggles to be named and shared. So that in our groping to understand, we remain open to the beating heart of God being made known to humankind. And how about this? What if we were to hold our convictions humbly? Now, conviction and humility are almost contradictory words, but what if we could hold convictions humbly? Like instead of thinking this is without a doubt absolutely true, we were to think this is what I'm thinking is true for today, right? Like this, this idea might not forever be true, but for me right now, it, it, in my knowing, in my bones, it is a truth that sets me free, and so I'm going to I'm going to hold it. And what if we were to talk about our truths gently? And instead of using conversation to convert each other, right, to like our way of thinking, what if we entered into conversation open to having our mind changed by the person who thinks differently? Oh, this would make conversation so invigorating. It would allow for the possibility that the back and forth between two human beings could create something altogether new. And how about this? What if we made room for each other in this incredible developmental process of blindness that gives birth to sight? You see, each of us here today is here today because of all the days that have led up to this day. And so the way that each of us see it all and understand it all is uniquely shaped for each of us. None of you have had my experience. I've not had your experience. We've not had each other's experiences. All we have is our experience. And this way of thinking, we're all in different places. Of course, right? Of course. And from these different places, we're going to think differently about life and about God and about convictions, about you name it. And that's not bad. Jesus seems to be saying it's good. That's the work of being human. What an incredible community to make room for differences in process and experience and development. What wonderful soil for nurturing growth. 
Like it makes me think of words such as compassion or gentleness or patience or kindness or love, which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. We don't see much of that in religious people who are absolutely certain about it all. And one final thought, what if our goal as a church is the opposite of dogma? Like, what if our goal as a church is to facilitate a trajectory of ongoing openness to the beating heart of God in Jesus? Breaking through tradition, overcoming laws, overturning religion to give sight to the blind, who is us? That's us. Well, if that was the goal, then we would compassionately engage the process of growth. We would hold our convictions more humbly. We would make more room for each person's development. And day by day, moment by moment, perhaps we would come to see just a little bit more clearly. God does not curse humankind. Every day is a day to do good. Each person, especially the least of these, has things to say and to contribute and to teach because we are all all on life's journey. and We are all slowly waking and slowly seeing. Let us pray. Lord, free us from dogma and rules and regulations and certainty that give shape to a callous faith and help us to see our own unseeing and daily open our hearts to receive new sight again and again and again. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.